Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Sports Travel Podcast, where we interview leaders from throughout the sports event industry. This is Matt Traub, Senior Editor of Sports Travel, and our guest today is Fraser Bullock, the Chief Operating Officer for the 2002 Olympic Winter Games in Salt Lake City, and current President and CEO of the Salt Lake City, Utah Committee for the Games, which is seeking to bring the Olympics back to Utah in either 2030 or 2034. But before we begin, a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Sports Travel Podcast is being sponsored by IMEX America. In what has been billed as a homecoming for the business events industry, IMEX America will take place November 9th through the 11th in Las Vegas. The show is celebrating its 10th edition and has a new home, Mandalay Bay. Expect business opportunities, an inspiring learning program, and sensational social events, all in an environment that's safe but not sterile. The Milestone Show has, as always, business at its core, and buyers can meet with suppliers spanning all sectors of the industry, destinations, hotel groups, venues, technology, and more. IMAX America takes place November 9th through the 11th at Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas with Smart Monday powered by MPI on November 8th. To register for free, head to IMAXAmerica.com. And now, on to the conversation. In only a few months, it will be the 20th anniversary of the 2002 Olympic Winter Games in Salt Lake City, one of only three destinations in the United States to have hosted the Winter Games. The 2002 event was Utah's introduction to the world and held under high security with 9-11 having happened less than six months before the opening ceremony. The Games ended up turning a huge profit that led to the creation of the Utah Olympic Legacy Foundation, an organization whose work continues to this day, and every venue that was used in the 2002 Games remains operational. With that in mind, Salt Lake City is bidding to host the Olympics again, either in 2030 or 2034. We sat down with Fraser Bullock to discuss both the legacy of the 2002 Olympics and his hopes for Salt Lake City to host another Olympics in the future. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Fraser Bullock, welcome to the Sports Travel Podcast. It's great to be with you. A few months from now, we will be celebrating the 20th anniversary of the 2002 Olympic Winter Games in Salt Lake City, Utah. What are your memories when looking back at that moment? When I look back, I think to the um, fabulous team that we put together because hosting the world in an event like that takes an incredible amount of planning detail, superb people. And I think of all the building blocks we put together and we assembled those. And at the beginning, you're thinking, is this really going to work? Are we really going to pull this off? This is amazingly complex. So you have those doubts. But as we went through the steps, we gained more and more confidence. And as that confidence built, we knew or we felt very strongly that we were going to be successful. And it gave the team and the people energy. And then the torch relay started. And and I remember being in Washington, D.C. and New York uh, for the torch relay and feeling this is becoming real. And then I'll never forget opening ceremonies is something I can still visualize today when the flag from the Twin Towers is being brought in. Uh, carried by the athletes, escorted by the Port Authority of New York, and thinking that this is a very special moment where we can unify the world together. And that was a very emotional time for me. And then we turned to the athletic competitions and the sport and all the stories that came out, and it was just, and the athletic achievements were just mind-boggling, both for the Olympics and Paralympics. 
It was absolutely the experience of a lifetime. But uh, what really stands out for me is opening ceremonies, the 9-11 flag, and then the stories, so many of them, of the athletes. You've mentioned it, and one thing I'm struck by as we record this, as the 20th anniversary of 9-11 is approaching, is how the Salt Lake City Games faced very real, very serious discussions and questions about security for athletes and fans. And take me back to those moments. How were you able to pivot quickly? Because you had spent years planning this event, and now you have to address worldwide security concerns in a matter of months and I remember there were people who raised the issue should the games be postponed should the games be canceled and how did you navigate those moments because that is very very serious concerns and it's something that you have to pivot on a dime when the Olympics all things considered are not really built to pivot on a dime well it almost sounds like you're an insider because that's exactly (laughs) what happened um And I'll paint a little bit of a preamble for you because I remember going in to see Mitt in August of 2001, kind of six months before our games, and telling Mitt, we're ready. I think we're really going to hit this out of the park. We're going to be fine financially. It looks like we're going to have a surplus. Operationally, we're going to do really, really well. The next time I remember talking to him is on the phone as he's in a car driving past the Pentagon moments after it had been hit. He was in D.C. getting additional funds for security, ironically. We, all the questions were posed by the media and various others. Should we host the games? Can we keep people safe? And, And here we had been working so hard to get ready. And four and a half months before the games, we have 9-11 hit. And obviously it was a horrific tragedy for everybody. Uh, the families, the individuals, the country, the world. And we mourned that, but then we had to quickly figure out, okay, how do we handle this? One of the things that I had as my responsibility was security. I had 30 different areas and security was one. Fortunately, we had already a very good security plan. But uh, the Friday after 9-11, I assembled all of the various security agencies, the leads of the various security agencies in a room. It was Secret Service, and they're the lead agency for events like this. We had the FBI there. We had the military there. We had FEMA there. We had local law enforcement. We had our team there. And what we did was we said, let's go back. Let's look at our plans and make sure that anything we need to enhance, we do. So we went back, looked at, we, I spent three days with one of my colleagues locked in a room and we went through every element of our plan, security plan. And what we found, it was, it was really good, but we needed to take it to a new level, particularly for aviation threats, which we did. And we got together a week later and came together with an enhanced plan that we felt very solid in terms of being able to portray confidence and give confidence to the athletes, to the countries, to the sponsors, to the Olympic family, to the spectators, all those people, they needed their confidence bolstered. And we were able to do that over the ensuing couple of months, such that when games time came, we were ready. It strikes me, thinking back to that moment, what you guys had to do, because 
the Olympics this past summer, and it's not an apples-to-apples situation. It's totally different. A terrorist attack and a global pandemic are different situations. But when you watch the organization for Tokyo have to constantly adapt on a week, almost weekly basis, did that bring back memories and be like, I've been there before in a different way, but I understand what they're going through because they're trying to do something that takes years and compress it into weeks. Well, the people from Tokyo and the organizing committee had the biggest challenge in Olympic history by far. I mean, what they pulled off was heroic in, in my book because I understand a lot of what they had to go through. They had to postpone the games for a year, for heaven's sake, and all these contracts and everything else. I could absolutely sympathize with them that shortly before the games, everything changes. Um, But what you rely on is your great people. You rely on the planning and infrastructure you've put in place. And you rely on the fact that really the games are about the athletes and the inspiration goes there. So you do everything in the background possible to allow the athletes to shine. And we were able to do that in our games. Yes, there was this theme of the world coming together, which made it very special and the world paying special attention to our games in 2002 because of 9-11. But then it allowed that theme of, and we had the theme of light the fire within, to see and be inspired by athletes. After going through this horrific tragedy, we could look to the future. We could look at hope. We could look at uh, moving forward. And to some degree, Tokyo did the same thing. They did something that in the midst of a pandemic nobody thought was possible and they did that and we continue to move forward so a lot of similarities and and the lesson is this for the olympics you have to be prepared for anything we're also talking shortly after the death of former ioc president jock roga who presided over the 2002 games what are your remembrances of the man he was the leader of the ioc but also someone who i imagine you worked very intimately with to make sure that the salt lake games were a success well i worked with jacques not only during our games but for years afterwards because he had me do some special projects for the ioc when i think of jacques i think of a graceful man who was kind thoughtful and kind of the best of humanity he was this human being that just effused warmth and kindness and caring for you. I mean, he would go out of his way when I would see him to come say hello and at different games down the road after our games. And it just always struck me that uh, the IOC was very fortunate to have a leader that embodied the best of humanity. Many may not realize it, but one of the groundbreaking things from 2002 was both the Olympic Games and the Paralympic Winter Games were organized by the single committee, the Salt Lake Organizing Committee. What has the growth in successive games since in Paralympic organization, and especially this past summer in media attention that is still ongoing, meant for members such as yourself from the 2002 committee, who were the first to put such an emphasis on the Paralympics? It's a big, big job to put on the Olympics, but then they gave us the Paralympics as well, and we were the first ones, and we were thinking, oh my gosh, how are we going to do this? Put on two games back to back. But it was absolutely a blessing to be able to do that because uh, we became enamored of the Paralympic Games as much as the Olympic Games. We became enamored of the special 
abilities of the Paralympians and the special struggles that they go through. And I remember I, I said, I'm going to learn an Olympic sport and a, and a Paralympic sport. And, and for me, the Olympic sport was bobsled and, and skeleton. And the Paralympic sport for me was sled hockey. And I was just blown away by how challenging that was. And I gained a deep appreciation for the Paralympians. And one of my absolute favorite events was the gold medal game, gold medal sled hockey game, where US beat, USA beat Norway. And it was overtime and then a shootout, and, and we edged them out. And it was a remarkable achievement since that time. And, and we think we opened the door for the Paralympic platform to be have greater exposure, which we did. But year after year, games after games, and now we see, I mean, right now, we, we see the Paralympics uh, in Tokyo getting this worldwide acclaim and the attention of the athletes. It's really kind of a dream come true for the Paralympic movement. And I think it's just beginning. The 2002 Games in so many ways, this was essentially Salt Lake City and to, to a degree, Utah's introduction to the world. Looking back to the preparations ahead of the opening ceremony and then the events, did you and the others on the Olympic Committee, including obviously you mentioned Mitt Romney, who was uh, among the committee members, did you guys feel pressure knowing that the eyes of the world were, were upon you in a way that Salt Lake City and Utah never had been before? Oh yeah, it scared the heck out of us. <laughs> <laughs> You realize February 8th, uh, 2002 at 7 p.m., the games are going on, whether you're ready or not. They are going to be broadcast around the world, 2 billion people seeing you. And there is this pressure. uh, But fortunately, we did have Mitt Romney, who is uh, the best leader I have ever worked with. I mean, he's just unbelievably talented. and, And he led us. And I had... I had the opportunity to partner with him in this endeavor. Yes, you are worried. You are frightened initially. And we used to use this adage of the only amateurs at the games are the people preparing them. Because we'd never done it before. <laughs> but we built the, the key for us to success and to be able to showcase Utah to the world appropriately was to get the very best people. And so we searched the world for people that were experienced. We, we searched Utah for the very best people here. We put together a remarkable team. And over time, your confidence builds. And you say, yeah, this is going to be spectacular. And it was. I want to talk about legacy a little bit. And among the legacies, from a sports perspective, from 2002, has been the growth of Utah's ski industry, especially in Park City, where the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Association is now located. Could you have projected the growth in that one particular industry, skiing, to have grown in Utah as big as it has become? Well, we we could aspire or hope to something like that, but um, I never dreamed it would become this big. And credit to the ski industry, the ski resorts, and the great work that they've done. Ski Utah, all, all the people who work very, very hard to make this a success. We just added significant exposure, which opened the doors for their enhanced success going forward. So it really is absolutely spectacular what we have here in Utah with new lifts and new resorts and all these things. It's, it's really exciting for the ski industry. 
in not just winter sports, but summer sports. Utah has become, and I've talked with people at the Utah Sports Commission about the Olympic legacy for them and what they've been able to do. And one of the things they've mentioned is how they're able to draw more than just winter sports. They're able to draw summer sports events. What is what is the Olympics done for this region, you think, not just winter sports, but sports destination year-round, professional, collegiate, even recreationally? I think it's been a remarkable growth and transformation for Utah in terms of being coming, becoming known as a sport destination. It was always kind of there before 2002 in a very limited way. We had sports teams and we had ski resorts. But now what's unfolded since then, and credit to the Utah Olympic Legacy Foundation for the venues and the Utah Sports Commission for hosting events, and that has really injected energy on an ongoing basis for this growth in sport. Without that ongoing energy, it will just deteriorate over time. So you have to have infrastructure to support it. You mentioned the Utah Olympic Legacy Foundation, and it's something in some many ways that LA84 started. But now you see it in not just Olympic Games, but almost every major national and international sporting event is trying to start legacy foundations, working to try and make sure that they're as best as able to have a budgetary surplus to then run those foundations. How important was making sure that you were able to deliver the games, but with an eye toward fiscal responsibility so that you could then set up following the legacy that LA84 started with, and make it your own. With Well, and, and I must admit, I went through a transformation because when I first started in my job of preparing to host the games, I said, I can't even worry about legacy. I just have to focus on putting on a successful game. So that's, that's all the energy I have. As we went through the preparation period, I came to understand and see that a bigger vision was possible. Not only could we host games, but we could put establish an incredible legacy, which really hadn't been done too much other than L.A. But you look around the world and you see decaying venues and and those are tragedies. And we said that can't happen here. Fortunately, we were able to have a surplus and, and leave $76 million to the Olympic, Utah Olympic Legacy Foundation to be able to support the venues going forward because there's many, several venues that aren't are economically, they can't stand on their own two feet. So with that, we were able to leave that behind. And now I understand that the most important element is the sporting legacy that continues and sustainability far into the future, and that the Olympic Games really is an enabler to many of the objectives that you have within the state, sport being a very large one. You mentioned venues, and one thing, it's been very prevalent with both the Summer and Winter Games, also to another major international competition, the World Cup, but it sometimes happens with any uh, national competition too, and that's so-called white elephant venues. What has it taken for the past 20 years to try and make sure that you leave, you make sure so many of those venues from 2002 are still operating and that they're not just, you know, you mentioned thanks to the Olympic Legacy Foundation, but they're not just operating, but they're organizationally functionable for year-round sport. And also, in some ways, some of them are able to also still bring in some financial benefits. Yes, that's one of the things that I believe is a, model from what came out of the Utah Games. 
is that every single one of our venues is in full active use today and incredibly busy. It's hard for any other Olympic city to say that. So we are somewhat unique. It really comes together from communities, the foundation, because for example, the Peaks Ice Arena in Provo, we built that with the cooperation of the city back in 2002, brand new arena. The community, after the games, took it on to make it successful. We didn't provide any funding for them. We helped build it, or we paid for building it, but then they took it over and it's tremendously successful today. So I give all the credit to the city of Provo for what they've done. Many of these venues need to be embraced by their communities and they are great resources to the communities for sport. But there are other venues that just can't make it economically. And that's when you have to have a strategy for those venues. And in in our case, it's Utah Olympic Park with bobsled and ski jumping, and it's the speed skating oval, and it's Soldier Hollow for uh, cross country and biathlon. Those venues are not sustainable on their own, no matter how enthusiastic the community (laughs) can be. Leaving behind a foundation with sufficient funds so that they can take the earnings off of that, the corpus of that uh, endowment, so that they can support the operations, but not just the operations, but the coaching, the, the kids developing the kids and athlete pipelines and things like that, that's a big vision. And so it really has to come down to, you have to look at each venue and have a strategy for each venue going forward and fortunately, it has worked out so well here in Utah. In your wildest dreams, could you have imagined 20 years after 2002, you would still be seeing activity at all these venues to the level that it is? It, we didn't envision it lasting this long <laughs> because we knew the endowment or we suspected the endowment over time would run out because it was not large enough to be a perpetual endowment. And so we thought after 15, maybe 20 years, it would it would run out. But fortunately, a couple of things have happened. Number one is the state of Utah stepped in to help with the maintenance of the facilities. The operations is still handled by the foundation. That's another reason why we need to host the future games is because we would like to expand that endowment to make it permanent so that Without taxpayer money, these venues can be permanently viable, attracting all of our citizens and kids and communities to enjoy sport and competition at world-class levels. This episode of the Sports Channel Podcast is being sponsored by IMEX America. In what has been billed as a homecoming for the business events industry, IMEX America will take place November 9th through the 11th in Las Vegas. The show is celebrating its 10th edition and has a new home, Mandalay Bay. Expect business opportunities, an inspiring learning program, and sensational social events, all in an environment that's safe but not sterile. The Milestone Show has, as always, business at its core, and buyers can meet with suppliers spanning all sectors of the industry, destinations, hotel groups, venues, technology, and more. IMAX America takes place November 9th through the 11th at Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas with Smart Monday powered by MPI on November 8th. To register for free, head to IMAXAmerica.com. And now, back to the conversation. You mentioned there is committee that has been formed now. You are the USOPC's preferred bidder 
for a future Olympic Games. Obviously, 2030 is available, 2034 is available. The bidding process is wildly different from what it was before. How would you describe the current status of the committee's work right now? Well, we are intensely engaged. We're actually preparing a bid, which is all the detail about a vision, about securing accommodations, venue use agreements. We're involved in that right now because we believe very strongly that we'll get 2030 or 2034. Um, Some of us who are older would much rather see 2030 because... 2034 is out of the question. <laughs> I'll be in a wheelchair or something by then. And, and so we are working through the issues. 2030s just has LA right in front of it. So it's a little more challenging and issues have to be worked through. And, and we're trying to work through those to determine in the very near future which games we will pursue. Obviously, most of the world right now is focused on preparation for Beijing. So we'll only get limited attention between now and then, but then we hope to have full-scale efforts in 2022. The IOC, just from the outside in, strikes me as an organization that doesn't like to be pushed to make a decision fast in, in some ways. So what is the balancing act because they want, they need to put on these games. They're, it's a quick turnaround from Tokyo to Beijing. But you also want to make sure that you have the most organization, the most lead-in time you possibly could, whether it's 2030 or 2034. So what is the balancing act in communicating with the USOPC and the IOC into what would you like? Would you like to have this now? We can. We, when do you want to meet and talk about these things? Because there's so much still up in the air. Well, it's, it's challenging because we have a singular focus. We, we want to get moving with our bid. But we recognize uh, the USOPC has to put a team together for Tokyo and then Beijing, and they're focused on that. And and the IOC is hosting two games super close together. And so we have to be somewhat patient. But when we see moments of daylight, we dash through those and try to push forward. And we're keeping what I'll call polite pressure on everybody to... We're polite because we understand the circumstances they're in, but we try to keep moving forward. And so it's a, a very fine balancing act. What would you say is Salt Lake City's standing in the Olympic world? I would say Salt Lake City's reputation is one of having put on spectacular games in the face of many difficulties. And particularly the international sport federations love Utah. They love our mountains and our facilities here. So overall, I think we're looked upon highly favorably as Utah and Salt Lake City. Then there's also how is the U.S. looked upon globally, and that's always changing. And, and so that ebbs and flows. So that's part of how we're viewed as well. But we try to do the best we can of portraying the best of Utah, which I think is very positive in the overall Olympic movement. You've been involved in the Olympic movement for decades now. The Olympic movement, there are people who, and I saw it a lot during Tokyo, who were people who phrased it as such, and I'm paraphrasing. I love the Olympics, but there's things about the Olympics that I can't stand. And I know it's difficult, but where do you see, as best as you can, how the Olympic movement will adapt to the changing world in the years to come? Well, we, one of the things that um, we have to be very sensitive to is 
our the needs of our state, our cities, and things like that. And so we're very sensitive to uh, some people being concerned about too much growth or, or things like that. Uh, so we need to listen. And part of our process will be kind of a listening campaign to understand exactly what is most beneficial for our state and our various communities. And we have a committee formed around that to be able to accomplish that. So we listen to that, but then we also understand from that what are their objectives and how can we accomplish through the Olympics, and maybe it's just a nudge here or there to certain people or institutions, how we can help them accomplish their objectives through this long process. But then as we look at the issues facing us on a, on a global basis, we look at things like sustainability and climate change and things like that, we have to be very sensitive. We have to be uh, very environmentally friendly. The benefit of Utah is that we have all the venues in place. And so we can do this on a very sustainable, uh, environmentally friendly basis compared to just about anywhere else in the world. So we are sensitive to those issues. We want to learn more about them. We want to help people through the Olympics. And hopefully, after the Games, have accomplished what our communities are seeking um, through, this, through this endeavor, but then lead, leave us uh, in a position so that we can have moved to our next chapter of Olympic legacy and sport and uh, participation by our youth and children in various act- sport activities. That's the hope. There are times, and I talk to people, and I see people who are interviewed after major events who are like, I don't know if I can ever do that again. You're sitting here 20 (laughs) years later, and you're like, I want it. Let's do it again. You know, what what made you catch the Olympic bug that even after 2002, you were like, I want to do it again, instead of going, I've done this, my experience, and now I'm ready to let, you know, just let that go. I would say there are a few things. One is that the Olympics are so much bigger than any individual. It allowed the world, in our case, to be inspired and unified. And what a great cause that is for anybody to be involved in. My teeny uh, role in helping that come about, I'll always treasure because we're inspired by the athletes and the great stories that they did. We were unified by the experience around 9-11, which was a healing moment for the world that was very important. I don't know what it will be like in 2030 or 2034, but there's some purpose, there's some cause that the Olympics will help fulfill. And so as hard as it is to put on Olympic Games, it's worth it. The other thing is the journey, although difficult, particularly initially, became a love of the people that we had on the team. To this day, go see people around the world who were on our team in 2002 and said, you know what, that was the best experience of my lifetime. Let's do it again. Fraser Bullock, thank you for joining us today on the Sports Travel Podcast. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. This has been another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. 
Past episodes are also available at sportstravelmagazine.com, which features breaking news and in-depth features on stories related to the sports event industry. Be sure to visit us daily at sportstravelmagazine.com, at Sports Travel on Twitter and Instagram, and at Sports Travel Magazine on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until then, this is Matt Trial for Sports Travel, and thanks for listening.